0: You're listening to The McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues of matter in business and management. This episode is brought to you by the McKinsey Global Institute. Hello and welcome to this episode of The McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. Today we are going to be taking stock of the role of women in the global workforce and also the experiences of women in the workplace. In other words, we'll be starting with a macro-level view on this hugely important topic before zooming in on the micro. If you've started to lose track of everything that's published at this complex intersection of gender and work, this podcast is for you. To discuss the facts, I sat down in Vancouver with Lorena Yee and Quaylin Ellingrud. Lorena is a leader in McKinsey's high-tech practice, And also the firm's chief diversity and inclusion officer she helps to lead the women in the workplace research project in partnership with leanin.org and the wall street journal now in its fifth year women in the workplace 2019 is published on october 15th so please do keep an eye open for it quailin is a leader in mckinsey's organization practice she sits on the advisory council of the McKinsey Global Institute and helps to lead the institute's Power of Parity research program. So, uh, Lorena and Quaylin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank, Thank you. you
1: for hosting us in Vancouver.
0: You are more than welcome. So, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. What I'd like to do is start with the macro, thinking about women in the workforce, the global workforce, and then later on we'll go to the micro, to think about the workplace. But Qualin, if you think about the macro level, first of all, think about women in the workforce overall, globally, what do we see?
2: In terms of paid work, what we see around the world is that women generate about 40% of global GDP. And they are concentrated in more part-time roles. They have the majority of part-time roles around the world, the minority of full-time roles. They're also concentrated in lower productivity sectors. Uh, They're more junior, typically, in organizations. uh, And they're also a significant wage gap globally. Um, In the United States, about 80 cents on the dollar for similar work. Uh, And when you compound that for women of color, that can be quite a bit lower, 60 or so cents on the dollar. Right, right.
0: So fewer women in the global workforce tending to be congregated in lower paid occupations, even if they're in the same occupation, they're probably less senior. And even if they're in the same level of seniority, they're probably paid less. As an economist, why should I care about that?
2: You should care because it's a big economic opportunity that we're missing, to the tune of about $12 trillion around the world. In fact, it would be about $28 trillion if we were to fully match equality in the workplace between women and men uh, across all of those three dimensions. So if we go to
0: absolute parity in terms of participation, seniority, pay, everything.
2: That would be worth $28 trillion, which is the economy of the size of the U.S. and China added together, but it's not realistic any time in the near term. And so to account both for near-term progress and potential, but also to account for individual choice, we took a look at what would be a more realistic scenario. And so we looked across each region and said, what's the best rate of improvement we've empirically seen happen over the last 10 years? This is
0: country by country.
2: Region by region, country by country. So in Western Europe, improving at the same rate of Spain across the entire region. In Latin America, improving at the rate of improvement of Argentina. And if we did that across each region, that gets us to about 40% of the opportunity, or $12 trillion. And that would be like adding the UK, Japan, and Germany to the global economy, or about
0: 11% of global GDP. It's a big deal. Wow. So the global economy could be 11% bigger in GDP terms if we could get to that more conservative level of progress towards parity.
2: Exactly. And it comes from three places. About 60% of it is from more women formally working in the workplace. Another 20% of it is more women taking full-time roles versus part-time roles. And the last 20% of it is sector mix, so concentrating in different sectors.
1: And so in some ways, what we have is a challenge in front of us to say, how do we help half of the world's population have better access to participate in the global economy. Mm -hmm. And that's where you see the really tough challenges. The business case is a pretty easy one. Then we have to move on to the harder stuff.
0: Yes, and I guess that's the other thing here. I mean, it's very easy to talk about the economy in the abstract, but the fact is that the economy is underpinned by a a great deal of, of law, social norms, access to services, personal security. There's a whole range of social and legal aspects to this that actually sort of underpin or then give you the outcome in the sense of workforce participation.
1: And that's probably one of the reasons why people feel that this is a very intractable and really challenging problem in the sense that it is many things. It's a systemic set of challenges.
2: On a global level, it is a system, and you can't expect to capture your country's share of the $12 trillion opportunity unless you're going to tackle the societal barriers that hold women back from participating in the workplace. And so if you want that economic boost and the growth that we were talking about, which government leaders, company CEOs want, then you have to be willing to tackle the societal gaps. Because if you actually plot you know, over 100 countries uh, on their both equality in work and their equality in society, those two things are highly correlated.
0: So, Quaylin, you you mentioned a little earlier that that there are some big occupational differences Mm -hmm. between men and women and the sectors in which they participate in the workforce. Why is that important?
2: The fact that work is gendered around the world is important because there's different wages in the different sectors in which women versus men are concentrated. It's also important though because
1: automation will affect different occupations differently. So the big so what, for me at least, is that the reason why it matters that our current footprint is gendered in work is that the solutions have to be gendered too. Let's just think about reskilling because that's eventually where we go with this is there's a huge opportunity to help women get to the new economy, to help both genders. If I were to apply a solution that helps nurses reskill, and I focus all on the health and social sector, where mostly there are women, I would probably miss the type of skills that men need if they have factory jobs and if they have construction jobs. Similarly, if I focus on reskilling with the assumption of most of the jobs where the men are, I might miss what are the skills and capabilities that women need? And so it's a very practical reason that you're going to need different reskilling for the genders because they actually sit in different occupations and jobs. One of the factors for being able to participate in reskilling is the ability to travel. And one of the interesting things in the research is it showed that the question of safety Mm -hmm. is just as paramount for the woman outside of Paris as the woman in India, as the woman in the United States. And that version of not feeling safe has different specifics, but it's the idea of do you feel safe between your home and your commute to your office, and within your office or workspace, do you feel safe? And that's everything from just disrespectful behavior in your commute all the way to physical abuse.
0: Yeah, which underlines, again, that, that you, know, you cannot look at the workforce and you cannot look at the economy without considering a lot of these social factors Absolutely. as well.
1: Absolutely. It's, it's looking at your social factors.
0: So if I had to summarize, we're saying that, number one, Because women in all countries, not just in developing countries, but because women in all countries face a variety of structural barriers to participation in the workforce, it could be harder for women to adapt and adjust, because they may not have the access to education, they may not be quite as mobile, they may not have the access to technology in the same ways. Um, And number two, if you have a reskilling program to deal with automation, that was to focus primarily on manufacturing, for example, that would de facto be a very gendered approach to dealing with the situation. So as a policymaker, you need to think about these these gender effects too. And the, exactly. It's very uneven.
1: And going back to we need reskilling in programs that meet women where they are versus expecting women to come to the programs So let's take those examples of women and where they're working today. So we've talked about formal work. It goes from 9 to 5 or something like that. Then they go home and they take their second shift. And their second shift are the hours and hours they spend in the unpaid care economy. And if you're looking to dimensionalize how many hours globally women spend in the unpaid economy, it's 1.1 trillion. It's three times more than men. And so they take their second shift in the unpaid economy, maybe taking care of elderly, family members, children. And then on top of that, we want them to take a third shift. And the third shift is the reskilling. And so when we think about how to help them, we also have to make it work for the way their lives work today. And if we think that it just works for them to take off three months to join a program, or just to take night classes, it frankly isn't as simple.
0: So this is another example of the very difficult structural barriers Mm -hmm. that a lot of women will face as we look at this uh, reskilling that's necessary to deal with workplace automation. Mm -hmm. But there's also certain sectors are growing, right? There are going to be jobs gained over the next several decades. It's not just a negative picture. So what are the gender effects of that? If we look through the sectoral differences, where's the growth going to be and how does that affect men and women?
2: One of the biggest areas, no surprise, that uh, is gaining jobs is healthcare, And that is a highly female-dominated sector. Over 70% of those jobs around the world are held by women. Um, and that is
1: largely because of the demographics and those shifts over time that we're seeing. There's also the technology and professional services sector where we're going to see an enormous amount of growth in jobs, both transformation of the jobs that exist today as well as just net new jobs that didn't exist a couple of years ago. Think about machine learning and the explosive growth in the types of jobs that there weren't applications for five years ago. Um, so that is very exciting. But to the point that Quaylan mentioned at the beginning, we have a gendered footprint to start. And we don't have as many women participating in the technology and professional services sector today. And we don't have as many young girls and young women participating in the education that leads to those pathways.
0: So let's zoom in. Let's go from the macro to the micro, from the workforce to the workplace. So Lorena, when you look at women in the workplace today, you look at the level of individual organizations and companies, what do you see?
1: So, the statistics similar to the global economy are a bit sobering. You have one in five executives at the top that are women. So you may start at anywhere from 45 to 35 percent women at the entry level, depending on the industry sector, and in some sectors like healthcare, you start much higher, something closer to 70 percent. But at the very first promotion, you start to see a disparity. In the United States, for example, we know that for every 100 men who receive their first promotion from the entry level to manager, only 79 women receive that same promotion. And if you're thinking about intersectionality, which is a very fancy word of saying, if I'm a female and I'm black, that number is 60. So the disparity starts early and then it just continues on to the very top of leadership ranks at boards and CEO and top teams where we see very, very few women.
0: And how much of this is national-specific versus prevalent, at least across Western economies?
1: These are trends that we see across the different economies. Now, certainly those dynamics will play out a little differently in countries and cultures and contexts, but the hard metrics look sober in every instance. It's interesting, Lorena, because when, you know, that first promotion that you describe,
2: after that much of a drop-off, there's almost nothing you can do in the rest of the funnel to equalize it at that point. Yeah, you can't run fast enough to the top.
0: I think there was this sort of working assumption, particularly from a lot of men, that it's women are leaving the workforce, that they get to a certain point in their career and they choose to either downshift or they leave the company, and that's the reason there aren't as many women in senior leadership positions. But I think the research shows that is categorically false,
1: right? We do not have an attrition problem, no. Men and women are not leaving the workforce at different rates. So when women leave, they're not leaving for the home economy. They're leaving to go to other companies in the same industry. Men and women leave for very similar reasons. And guess what reason they're not leaving for? They're not leaving for family. They're leaving for professional opportunities.
0: I think we established very clearly why at the macro level, if you're an economist or a policymaker, this is something you should care about. For a CEO, just remind us, why should I care about this issue?
1: From an economic value creation perspective, the case is very clear. There's also a fact that you want to reflect the communities and the populations that you're a part of in a most essential way. And if your business doesn't reflect that, you're off a beat. There can also be a social responsibility. And increasingly, I think businesses are questioning whether they should be thinking about that in their core strategy. Ultimately, it's less about the academic reasons and it's more about a a sense of authentic commitment. And so we know that companies that make that commitment from the very top and carry it all the way down through the first line managers are more successful. So this can be done, but ultimately we need to act. And we need to act both in terms of our policies and the structure, but also the underlying mindsets. And I think the companies that
2: I've seen make significant progress, certainly have a very clear tone from the top, as you were describing. Uh, but they're also very focused, right? So they're not doing seven initiatives and trying to track the progress over the course of a couple of years. They're saying, we're going to do these two things, and we're just going to execute the heck out of it. And then we're going to see where we are in a couple of months, and then we're going to reevaluate. But you know, really spread this pretty quickly. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think some companies are starting to say, we're going to be more creative about the tools to which we can affect change. So one of the things that's been really interesting is to watch P&G. And they're saying, hmm, maybe we can use our advertising and creative energies to show an image of a more equal world. And they've actually invested disproportionately in different campaigns around their products and showing that. And that's a very different um, tactic or strategy that we haven't seen others use, which is to say it's not just my internal flexibility in HR programs, it's how do I use my capital, my weight to change the environment for my employees, but also for those outside. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just a higher level of maturity in terms of
2: figuring out what's the impact that you can have in the world, expanding their sites outside the walls of their own company to say upstream and downstream, and with my supply chain and with my advertising clout, and how I influence the broader world. How do I think about pursuing gender equality with my unique voice and my unique talents?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so just say a little bit more about what we know works based on the research. We said. Visible vocal CEO commitment, number one. A small number of powerful programs, number two. Thinking about how you impact the world through things like your supplier base, how you interact with customers, number three. What are the other things that we just know work?
1: Data transparency, using data to understand and have a fact base and being transparent about where you are. I think another thing that we know works is don't shy away from implementing the basics every single day, year on and year out. So there's something that's not very exciting about that. And you're going to have to continue to inspire people. And then on top of that, you probably have to challenge some of the conventional norms. And those typically hit at the underlying mindsets. And so some of those are fears, that for jobs within a company or in the economy, it's a zero sum game. It's actually not an expanding pie. Another one is just the fear of change. But surely you've got to
0: get down to the level of that first promotion. From what you said earlier about the first promotion being you know, absolutely critical in a place of huge attrition for talented women.
1: Well, I think it's both. So one of the things that you find is when you look at the pipeline, you're going to have to probably solve two or three major pieces where women fall off. One is, did you actually bring them through the door in the first place? Secondly is the first promotion gap. And third is leadership. Yeah. And if you just do one and you're wondering why you're not making progress, it's because you need a systems approach. Yeah. Just
0: to be devil's advocate, isn't the sort of systems approach, isn't it somewhat at odds with what you were saying, Quaylan, around just needing to pick two or three core initiatives and execute the hell out of them? Mm-hmm.
1: I don't think it's at odds. So I think what Koylan is mentioning is consistent to the systems approach, which is, let's actually take a look at where we lose women. um, And let's take a look at where our experiences are unequal and have very targeted sets of things that we do in concert to each other to change the overall playing field and to change the overall culture and environment. So likely, it's something less than five major things that you're doing. And it's not the spaghetti at the wall. It's more intentional. And there's a pretty broad range,
2: so unconscious bias training or efforts are one of the most common initiatives I think we see. Um, And there's a huge range and difference between companies that really do it versus companies that say, let's do the two or three hour training in a conference room and call it a day. And the companies that really do it work this into their HR and their people systems. So they might have somebody in a people review who is devil's advocate and raises the tough questions to say, would we have had that same conversation if that weren't a woman coming back from maternity leave? Or would we have had that same conversation if that weren't a man in the same very aggressive leadership style as his successful mentor? And those are the tough discussions that need to happen. And you rewind that from the promotions discussion all the way to the entry point. And what we see is that there is still both conscious and unconscious bias, even at initial resume screening.
0: Can we just segue to the inclusion part of diversity and inclusion? It sort of feels uh, in a good way as if the conversation has shifted a little bit over the last several years towards inclusion and inclusive cultures. Just talk a little bit about why that is. and, And for people who may not have considered this, what actually is the difference between diversity and inclusion?
1: So the simplest way to think about is diversity is often counting the number of people represented. And inclusion is the experience that they have, how they feel. So it's one thing to bring a woman to the table, but does she feel that she can bring her whole self, her best self? Does she feel that she belongs at that table and she's connected to the people around her? You need both. You need the participation and the experience because inclusion is the fundamental basic that you need in your culture. And what's really interesting about inclusion is it's not just for women. It's literally, if you work in a world of extroverts and you're an introvert, do you feel that you can be part of that discussion? I'm just using that as a very extreme example. But the concept is inclusion is not gender-based. Inclusion is actually for both men and women and for people that come from different backgrounds and have different ways of processing and thinking. The underlying belief is that if you put a diversity of viewpoints, at the table together. And if all of them are working together, you're gonna get better answers.
0: Right, but they have to feel included for that to happen. That's the point. It's no good just doing the diversity and getting the count right. It's like the dynamic of how people feel around the table. Absolutely. So again, if I'm a CEO and I wanna create an inclusive culture within my organization, what are some of the things that I need to pay attention to?
1: One of the things that we know is really important is the impact of microaggressions. So people ask, what are microaggressions? It is the fact that women are more likely to be perceived as more junior than they really are. Their judgment is more likely to be questioned. They're less likely to be defended if their work is questioned. They're less likely to be given professional opportunities for growth. There's a string of things that happen each and every day to women. And you would say each individual peace isn't worth having a huge discussion about. But what you realize is the cumulative effect is that women are standing on a field that's significantly lower than men. And so, when we say there's an uneven playing field, this just gives us some specifics and examples of that. So it's the
0: everyday slights. It's
1: you like. the everyday slights. And what a CEO can do, or or a manager can do, is to start to lead differently. And so, it's about changing the culture, and it's creating a place where those slights don't happen, and where people feel, as a result, that they're more included and that they belong more. I think the other thing a CEO can
2: do is drive that accountability from the overall level down by business unit, by function, and ask, what are we doing to move the needle? And also empower managers, because you don't quit your CEO, right? You quit your immediate manager because they can't make the flexibility happen. And so empowering managers to handle, for example, a very awkward situation or um, sexual harassment, those types of tough conversations are really important. And then on the positive side, empowering them to make flexibility day-to-day so that you can manage your life is really important as well.
1: And over time when we've interviewed women executives, one of the things and what we've seen also in the data overall is that women feel more isolated. So what we find is that you know, we ask women, do you believe that your gender has gotten in the way of future opportunities, and over a quarter of the women will say yes, absolutely. I think it's something that will hold me back going forward, and I think it's something that will, has held me back before.
0: Is this one of the reasons that we advocate clustering women? This issue of being the only woman, for example, uh, in, in a meeting or on a team.
1: Well, it's one of the it's one of the strategies that companies have been increasingly looking at. If you can create teams where there's a critical mass of women, so you know if if she can see it, she can be it. So there's a leader who's a woman. There's a more diverse leadership team. There are more women that they're pairing with. Um, it creates a better experience.
0: Something else that jumped out at me in the research is is this big disparity between line roles and staff roles. Just say a little bit more about that, Quaidon.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because you know, that one in five women in the C-suite, I think belies a bit of that balance of power. So women are much more likely to have a staff role. And if you look at S&P 500 CEOs who were promoted from within over the last few years, somewhere between 99 and 100% of them from year to year are promoted from running the biggest p to that CEO role. And so if we want to shift the 6% of Fortune 500 CEOs who are women, we need to shift that balance between staff and line roles that are held by women.
1: So there's something happening between sort of a early manager to an SVP where you see a very small percentage of women able to stay in the power alley roles, which typically are those that run the P&Ls of the business. So one piece of advice I always give (laughs) to women is stay in the line.
0: Do we know why it's so difficult for women to stay in those line roles?
1: Some of it is that as they hit the childbearing years where family becomes a bigger priority, and that's not for everybody, but that's for many women, they often will take support roles, maybe because those are the opportunities that are offered to them um, that allow them to stay at full-time work, but also allow them to have a slightly different pace, Um, or because maybe that's where they see more role models and they see more support. And I think that businesses can be far more creative and thoughtful about how to retain women in the line roles. Um, There was a CEO of a healthcare company who said one of the things that he would do is he would personally intervene and say, you have the potential to be the head of the business and you are about to go on mat leave for your second child and I heard that you want to take this finance role and all I'm saying is I'm giving you a return ticket back into the line role and you need to bring this ticket to me after a couple years when you're ready to come back because it is going to be really hard to pull you back and we're going to pull you back in.
0: Right. So it reminds me almost of on-ramps and off-ramps, which people typically talk of in, in in the context of maternity leave, for example, but it's like within the business. It's yes. an on-ramp and an off-ramp to line roles.
1: Absolutely. But the on-ramp and off-ramp time period tends to be incredibly short. We're really just thinking about the first three months when someone comes back, and we're thinking that they only maybe have one child. We're not really thinking about the impact of being parents, both men and women, over the course of, say, nine years as you have Three children. We're not thinking about the total impact and how you continue to progress your career and how you continue to advance, and that you may go through a set of years where, even as a guy, you actually would like to take a job that's less focused on being promoted and more focused on staying in the role that you have, and then you're willing to upshift a couple of years later. Yeah. Which is why some companies are reevaluating what is the type of support that you give for parents, and to think through how do we support parents in terms of childcare? Um, in terms of career flexibility, in terms of de-risking the ability to take some of the flexibility programs that are offered. One of the things that we know is that there are lots and lots of programs for flexibility, but nobody takes them. And why don't they take them? Because they think it'll hurt their careers. And by the way, there are a lot of men who want their systems to change. For them, the big step is to de-risk that you can participate in these programs as well. And so I do think there's a bit of a reframing that we do all of this to help women. We do all of this to actually help our overall people. Um, but often women are, as that quote will say, the, the canaries in the coal mine. So you know, they're the first population in a company that we see. But very quickly, companies need to think about how the types of programs and innovations help everybody.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. And thanks as always to you, our listeners, for tuning in to this episode of the McKinsey Podcast. To find the latest from women in the workplace, the power of parity, and a lot more besides, please do visit us at mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.